So for tonight and for the next two Fridays, we're going to be in the book of Leviticus. And as I started working on the sermon, I started thinking of a, a rationale or a defense for why, why Leviticus? You know, there's 66 books in the Bible. Why Leviticus? Why at this time? Because I think if you've ever read Leviticus, you know that it presents certain challenges in reading it. So thinking about some of those challenges, one would be that a large amount of the laws in Leviticus are no longer applicable to the people of God. We don't have to follow them anymore. And in a lot of ways, we can't. So we don't have, uh, we don't bring in bulls and slaughter them in front of the altar here. Uh, that's not something that we do. We don't observe the different offerings. We don't observe the food laws that are in Leviticus 11. Uh, you can eat anything on there, even though if you read the food laws, you know that most of those things that are unclean, we would probably not want to eat anyway. We don't follow the clean, unclean distinction anymore. We don't observe the laws for skin disease. We don't follow the liturgical calendar, even the Day of Atonement, which was the highlight of the Israelites' year. And that's at the heart of the book of Leviticus in chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. So a lot of the laws that are in Leviticus we don't follow anymore. And so it can be confusing as to why do we have to read this, why do we have to know it. There's a lot of repetition in Leviticus, and that can make it tedious and kind of hard to read. There's also some things in Leviticus that are very personal related to the way that human bodies function. And we don't talk about these things in public. And yet Leviticus talks about them all throughout the book, very openly. There are terms and images that make us uncomfortable to think about or say, and they're right there in the Bible. And there have been parents who have gone through the St. James reading plan and come to Leviticus and gone blundering into Leviticus 18 or 20 and afterwards thought, I would have liked to have known what was in there before I started reading that to the kids. So I recognize the difficulty of preaching on Leviticus, but I decided I'm not going to waste the time and spend the time giving a rationale or a defense for why we should be in Leviticus. I'm going to simply take it for granted that this is where God has us, and we have just as much reason to be in Leviticus as we would anywhere else in the Bible. And I believe that the Lord has good things for us to learn from it tonight and for the next couple of weeks. But also, the timing is good, because if you do use the St. James Reader plan, we will begin Leviticus starting, I think, next Friday. So if you use the plan, you like the plan, we're going to be in Leviticus soon. And so I think these sermons will help you read Leviticus with more insight so that you can not have to puzzle through everything, but can really open up your heart to hear from God in Leviticus. Does that make sense? All right, let's pray, and then we will, we will get into the Word. Father, we thank you for this time in your Word. We thank you for the book of Leviticus. We pray that our hearts would be open to receive what you have to give. I pray that any mistakes that I make or Just things that I do that get in the way would be ignored and disregarded so that we can fully attend to your message to us tonight. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who speaks to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've ever followed a TV show, you know that usually at the beginning of an episode of a TV show, there will be something like previously on, and then there will be a brief recap of what happened in the previous episode. Well, I want to start in talking about Leviticus by saying previously in the Bible and do a recap of everything that's happened in Genesis and Exodus leading up to Leviticus with particular attention to the theme 
of the presence of God with human beings, with his human creatures, the presence of God. So in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he populates it with creatures, and he blesses them to be fruitful and to multiply. And he plants a garden in Eden, and he puts Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. And God gives him Eve as a helper. And God is no stranger to the garden. In Genesis 3, it says that he was walking in the cool of the day. It seems like something that he did regularly with Adam and with Eve. So God dwells with his people, and they have fellowship with him in the garden. When Adam and Eve, uh, when Adam and Eve rebel, they're exiled from the garden, and God puts a cherubim with a flaming sword at the entrance so they, they can't go back in. But God does not fully withdraw his presence from them. In fact, after God rejects Cain's offering in Genesis 4, he meets with Cain and he warns him about what's going on in Cain's heart. And God talks to him and he warns him. He's there with Cain. And after Cain kills Abel, God meets with Cain again. And that's a very different kind of meeting than the first one was. And 4.16 says, And Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And that's the beginning of a pattern where the human race as a whole begins to move farther and farther away from the presence of God, to where the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so God sends a flood to blot man off the face of the earth. But prior to this moment, in Genesis 5, we find that even as wickedness has increased in the earth, God was still present in the earth. And so we're told in chapter 5 that Enoch walked with God. And in chapter 6, we're told that Noah walked with God. And maybe that's a figure of speech for just living before God. But maybe they really walked with God. I think, they, I think they probably did walk with God, had a personal relationship with God, knew him intimately, knew him well, because God was still dwelling with man on the earth. After Noah builds the ark, God personally shuts them in, it says in chapter 7. But after the flood, God seems to no longer live and dwell on the earth. He sets his rainbow in the cloud as a sign of his covenant with his new creation, and he withdraws to the heavenly tabernacle. And in Genesis 11, we're told that God came down to see the city and tower of Babel that the children of man had built. It's the first time in the Bible that says that God came down from anywhere because God had been dwelling with his people on the earth. God appears to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but not very often, and sometimes in visions, which is kind of a new thing, and a little bit more removed. Enoch and Noah had walked with God, but God says to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. God had promised Abraham, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. But at the end of Genesis, Jacob's family is living in Egypt. They're far from the land of Canaan, and they're far from dwelling with God once again. And Genesis, the book of Genesis, ends with this sentence. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. 
That's how the book of Genesis ends. The movement in the book of Genesis is from fullness of life in the presence of God to death in an Egyptian grave. So that's Genesis. Exodus is about the movement back toward fellowship with God on the earth. But it opens with death. Just as Genesis ended with death, Exodus opens with death. With Israel enslaved and Hebrew babies being drowned in the Nile. And the Israelites are not free to go to the promised land. And Pharaoh is trying to cut off their future line. Israel's as far from the garden and fellowship with God as they have ever been. Exodus 2 says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew And God determines to do something about this situation. Not to just deliver his people, but also to be reunited with his people. To have fellowship with his people once again. He doesn't just deliver them at the Red Sea and say, well, there you go, you're free, and I'm back up to the clouds. He brings them to Mount Sinai, where he enters into a covenant with them, and he gives them the law. He betroths Israel to himself, and he says, here's how we are going to live together. And then in Exodus 25 to 31, God gives Moses the instructions for how to build the tabernacle and the furniture and the priestly garments, everything that goes with the tabernacle. And God says that the tabernacle will be a place where he will not just dwell, but he will meet with his people there. It will be a tent of meeting. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible, sometimes the tabernacle is also called the tent of meeting? Well, that's why, because God doesn't want to just dwell with his people, but he also wants to meet with them. And on the mountain, Moses sees the heavenly temple, the one that exists in the highest heaven. And he's repeatedly told to make this tabernacle according to that pattern. And the tabernacle is built in chapters 35 to 39. And in chapter 40, God comes to take up residence in the tabernacle. And this is cause for celebration. They've finished the work, and God is now dwelling with them. However, in fact, let me, let me get my Bible real quick. Chapter 40 of Exodus, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then this verse follows. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So it's a cause for celebration, but Moses can't go into the tabernacle. It's the dwelling place of God, but it's not yet a tent of meeting because Moses can't go inside. And quite frankly, if Moses can't go inside, nobody can go inside. So something needs to happen to make the tabernacle, this dwelling place of God, also a tent of meeting where ordinary, regular Israelites can come and have fellowship with God. Because that's what God had wanted in the first place. That is what Leviticus is all about. About God making the tabernacle a place where he can meet with his people. Imagine if the president of the United States moved into your neighborhood. Okay? It doesn't have to be this president. If you don't like this president, think of any president you want. It's fine. 
think of a president of the United States, moves into your neighborhood, is your next door neighbor. Think of how your life would change, would radically change. Think of how the rules of the Secret Service would govern when you can go out and when you can come in. Think of how you would have to be careful in everything that you do. You would probably not be setting off fireworks in your backyard with the President of the United States next door. At the end of the book of Exodus, God has moved into the neighborhood of the people of God. And Leviticus tells Israel how to live with God as their neighbor. Leviticus tells the Israelites how they're going to live with God as their neighbor. So keep this in mind. When you're reading Leviticus, whether you're reading about the offerings or skin diseases or clean and unclean animals or blood or discharges or any of that, continually come back to the big picture, which is God's desire to dwell with and meet with his people. Does that make sense? All right. So I want to give an overview of Leviticus chapters 1 through 9. Obviously, in three weeks, we are not going to go in great depth or detail into the book of Leviticus. But we're going to talk about the offerings tonight. And so in the first six or seven chapters of Leviticus, it goes through these different offerings. But it starts in verse 1 of chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Leviticus chapter 1. And it opens by saying, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So God has taken up residence in the tabernacle, and he's speaking to Moses from inside the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And in chapters 1 through 7, God lays out five different offerings. And these are ways in which the worshipers, the regular Israelites, can come to meet with God. They can draw near to him and meet with him. Five different offerings that get laid out. We're going to go through each one, not each one in great depth. The translation in the ESV for these offerings, I think, is not ideal. And so I'm going to go with some alternative translations for each of these offerings. So the first one, in chapter 1, we have in the ESV what's called the burnt offering. In other translations, it's the whole burnt offering. I'm going to call this the ascension offering because it makes better sense of the Hebrew word to ascend. And so this is the ascension offering. And, And we'll see why that's fitting in a few minutes. In chapter 2, we have the grain offering, which I'm going to call the tribute offering. In chapter 3, we have the peace offering, which I'm going to call the communion offering. In chapter 4 and 5, we have the sin offering, which is better called the purification offering. And in chapters 5 and 6, we have the guilt offering, which I'm just going to call the guilt offering. That's actually good enough. So we have the ascension offering, the tribute offering, the communion offering, the purification offering, and the guilt offering. Now let's look at each one. I'm going to spend most of the time on the ascension offering because what happens in the ascension offering, by and large, happens in a lot of the other offerings. There's a lot of overlap between the ascension offering and these other offerings. So Leviticus 1, uh, I'm going to go through verse 9. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. 
He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So a couple of things to notice here. First, the offering is to be something without blemish. The animal that's offered is to have no blemish at all. They are to bring a grade A animal from the herd, the best that they have. This, as you can imagine, would be costly. You're giving up an animal of great value. You can imagine the temptation to select an animal that maybe is less than the best. That maybe you detect a hint of disease in the animal and think, well, this thing's, this thing's going to be dead in a week. You know, what, what does it matter if it dies in a week here or if it's given up on the, on the altar? You know, I'm just going to give this one. The quality of the offering reveals the heart that is behind the offering. The heart of the worshiper is revealed in the kind of animal that he's willing to give. If he's not willing to give his best, if he's not willing to give something good, it reveals something that's holding back in his heart. So it has to be a grade A top flight animal. Next, he lays his hand on the head of the animal. And in doing this, the animal now stands in for the worshiper. It's a substitute that takes the worshiper's place. In effect, the worshiper says, I am this animal. I am this animal. The worshiper can't ascend God's holy mountain as he is, but he can ascend through this blameless substitute that is going to be cut up and put in the fire. Then the worshiper kills the animal. Now, I don't know if you noticed this. It wasn't until I was recently studying Leviticus that I realized that the worshiper slaughters the animal. I had always thought that that was just what the priest did, that the priest slaughtered the animal. But no, it says, Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priests shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the tent of meeting. The worshiper does the killing. I don't think there could be a better picture of confessing that I need to die to myself than to say, this animal is me, and then slaughter it. I think that's a picture of death to self. Then the blood is thrown against the sides of the altar. Leviticus 17, 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So the altar for the offerings is holy space. It is sacred space. And when the blood of the animal is thrown against the altar, it's a picture of the soul coming in contact with the divine. The worshiper has said, I am this animal and I need to die to myself. And to this, we add the worshiper saying, and God has provided a way for this to be possible. I am this animal. I need to die to myself. And God has made it possible for me to do this. 
God gives the blood to make atonement, to be reconciled with him, to get to come home again into his presence. And the animal has to lose its life for the worshiper to get to do that. And our approach to God is no less costly because Christ says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's death to self. It's just as costly. And God has provided a way for it to happen. And then finally, everything is burned up. A better translation and image is that everything is turned to smoke. So all of the animal is put on the altar and it's turned to smoke. All of the bull, except the skin, is turned to smoke. And the smoke ascends into the presence of God where it's received as a pleasing aroma. That's why it's called an ascension offering, because the smoke ascends to the presence of God. And the animal has gone now where the worshiper could not go himself as he was. And because the animal is in the place of the worshiper, he does get to ascend into the presence of God. And because everything is burned up and turned to smoke, it's a picture of total consecration to God, of giving oneself fully to God and holding nothing back. The worshiper said, I am this animal and I need to die to myself and God has made it possible. And so I offer all that I am to God so that I can have fellowship with him, so that I can be forgiven and so that I can have fellowship with him. And the ascension offering reveals the worshiper's heart to die to self and to ascend into the presence of God, believing that God has made it all possible. Isn't that good? Hopefully when you read about these offerings from now on, you read it in a different light. So that's the ascension offering. Next is the tribute offering or or the grain offering in chapter 2. So Israel's in a covenant relationship with God that God initiated. And so the worshiper ascends through the ascension offering and brings a gift as a tribute offering. And this was made from grain, kind of like a, a flat bread that had frankincense and oil on it. And so the worshiper ascends bearing a gift. All of the offerings are placed on top of the ascension offering because they come after it. Then there's the communion offering, which is called the peace offering in your Bible in chapter 3. And the communion offering is like the ascension offering, except at the end, the Israelite worshiper is given a portion of the sacrificial meat to enjoy with his family and his friends in the presence of God. So flashback to Exodus 24. If you remember in Exodus 24, Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons and the 70 elders eat and drink and they behold God and God leaves them alone. And this is in the middle part of the mountain where the ordinary folks couldn't go. Only Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons and the 70 elders could be in that middle part of the mountain and only Moses gets to go to the top. Well, now with the communion offering, the regular folk can eat and drink in the presence of God. They can come into God's presence, they can take part in this communion offering, and they can eat and drink in his presence with their family and friends, just like Moses, Aaron, Aaron's sons, and the 70 elders did. And then there's the purification offering and the guilt offering. And these were offerings that dealt with sin and uncleanness. And, and they had to happen before the worshiper could make the other offerings. So the purification offering covered anything that was related to being unclean. And so this is where the term sin offering is a bit misleading because it doesn't have to do really with what we think of as sin. So for example, if a woman has had a baby, after a certain amount of time, before she can return to the tabernacle, 
she has to come and make a purification offering because of the uncleanness associated with the blood. Well, that's not a sin issue. That's not a moral wrongdoing. She didn't do anything wrong, but it's still an uncleanness that has to be dealt with so that the sanctuary is not defiled. So it's a purification offering, not a sin offering the way that we think of sin. But the guilt offering has more to do with actual sin, actual wrongdoing. And in some cases, there's restitution that has to be made. And this is where the the worshiper could take what he took and then restore an extra fifth to it. So here's how these offerings seem to work in practice. The worshiper would come to the tabernacle and first offer either a purification offering or a guilt offering or both, depending on their uncleanness or their sin. They would do that. It dealt with their sin and uncleanness. And then they could make one or all of the other offerings. They would make the ascension offering and then maybe the tribute offering and then the communion offering after which they could celebrate a meal with their family and friends in the presence of God. These are voluntary offerings these, other, these last three. So what does that all mean? Well, remember that God's goal for Israel was to restore them to fellowship and communion with himself. And for that to happen, sin had to be dealt with, and the worshiper had to consecrate themselves fully to God, had to be given fully to God. They had to move from being a common people to being a holy people. And for Israel, the way to God is through a bloody knife and a burning altar. This is the way that God himself has opened for the people of God to move past the cherubim, to move past the flaming sword back into the garden. Does that make sense? And I think sometimes, you know, when we, we feel like we read this stuff and maybe we can't relate to it, but thinking in particular about the communion offering, um, tonight when we come to the table and we partake of the bread and we partake of the cup, and you eat with your friends because sometimes we, we take communion with our families and also with other people. We can do that with the same joy that the Israelite eating the meal of the communion offering would have had in eating that with their family and their friends in the presence of God. When we take the bread and the cup, we can relate in the same way to the Israelite who participated in the communion offering. We could talk together with them about what it's like to eat and drink in the presence of God. I just think that's awesome. Finally, I want to talk about the glory of the Lord. And flipping ahead then to Leviticus chapter 9. This is at the end of Leviticus 9. This is where all these offerings, all the instructions are going. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. Now they get to go in went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar, and when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And some translations add, they shouted with joy and fell on their faces, and I think that's an important distinction. It fits the occasion. They didn't shout with fear. They weren't scared of God. They weren't scared of the glory of the Lord. They shouted with joy because God was among them. Remember in Exodus, the glory of the Lord had appeared on the mountain, a burning mountain, and the people were scared. And the people, they they weren't allowed to go near, and they didn't want to go near. But now, 
everything with all the offerings, now they can have fellowship with God again and they can be in his presence. They shout for joy because God has turned the dwelling pla- the, his dwelling place into a tent of meeting. They can be in his presence once again. Is that good? I want to just make a couple of quick points of application in this. Three points. The first one is God desires fellowship with his people, but they can't only kind of want to be with him sometimes when it's convenient. God desires fellowship with his people. That has always been God's goal. He created the world to share it with human beings. And even after sin, he provided a way for those who love him to have fellowship with him. By faith, we will be with God for eternity in heaven. But that doesn't mean very much if we don't have a thirst for enjoying God's presence now. If we don't enjoy God's presence now, I don't know that the prospect of eternity with God is all that appealing. In the Ascension offering, the worshiper brings his very best animal, a blameless one. And we need to bring all of ourselves to God and not just allocate to him what's church time or churchly activities, but bringing our whole lives to him and not just keeping the rest to ourselves. Number two, there is never any getting around death to self. There is never any getting around death to self. The worshiper says, I am this animal. And in slaughtering it and turning it to smoke, communicates to God his desire for fellowship with God. It's costly, but there's no such thing as a cheap sacrifice. Sacrifice is always costly if it's real sacrifice. And we may say that we want to grow. We, want to, we may involve ourselves in church activities and family devotions and know a lot about the Bible. But we can do all of those things and still keep God at a very far distance if we want to. Only death to self brings us close. Again, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him die to himself, and take up his cross and follow me. And then finally, and this will lead us into communion, the Lord invites us to have a meal with him and with each other. The communion offering is a shadow of the Lord's table, which itself is a shadow of what's to come at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And for now, we take this bread and we take this cup with joy because our Lord is present and it's a foretaste of the joy that is to come. Amen? Amen.